navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 23 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the new show I recently launched in addition to the Datascape. It's called the Cloudscape Podcast. It's a monthly news-style show where we diffuse the most important public cloud announcements and help you understand the most important ones and the most relative ones. You can find it on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play Music, just about anywhere you get your podcasts. Now on to today's show. The IT and financial industries have been all abuzz with cryptocurrency and ultimately blockchain. It's pretty much impossible to ignore. Instead of covering the blockchain and crypto basics, there are many, many great resources out there already. We're going to focus on the differences and use cases for public and private chains. So I've invited Pythian's blockchain expert back to the show. His name is Adam Muse. Hey, Adam. Welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Good to be back. The audience can get to know you in our Solutions Architecture episode with John Laham. So instead of doing the normal introduction, why don't you outline your experience with blockchain today? Sure. Like everyone else, blockchain is new. So, you know, there's only so many years of experience you can have with it. Just to give a context, blockchain sort of has two phases and I'll characterize my history accordingly. There was the first phase, which was Bitcoin, which everyone at this point is very familiar with. And that was 2009. And many of us nerds and and just interested parties alike did mining for currency and was were interested in some of the extensions that went on and made sort of the beginnings of scripts and therefore contracts in Bitcoin, along with all the alt, other altcoins. So I participated in that community, did some development, did some mining, but maybe the more interesting phase is more recent, which is 2015, we saw the beginning of something that was really a game changer. It took the technology of blockchain and added real fully Turing complete smart contracts. And that's Ethereum. And I have basically been going to all the conferences, working with Ethereum to build an identity platform for a company, a large fintech company, as well as being involved in several other startups related to Ethereum specifically and smart contracts. And I have continued this on in Pythian and we're trying to build up some really interesting new use cases as well as we're working on some very well established use cases like an asset management chain. So, you know, like as much as anyone else can say they're an expert, it's very much a new area, but I feel really comfortable talking about uh, at least private chains and, and how we're using them day to day. Okay, great. So let's start at the beginning. What is the difference between a private and a public blockchain? It's thankfully not a contentious dis- debate. It, it pretty much, you can name the public chains probably on one hand, although they're growing regularly. And then the private chains, I mean, good luck finding or even hearing about all of them. But public chains have a very important aspect to them. And that is that they truly are decentralized. No one controls all of the voting or the ability to get onto a chain. So something like Ethereum or Bitcoin no one's stopping any of us from creating a, a node and jumping on there. There's no central authority to actually appeal to. We don't have to fill out any forms. We just create an ID and put ourselves on it. The how and why we put ourselves on it could be multiple reasons too, depending on the nature of the chain. So one aspect of the chain is to have a collective interest. In the case of Bitcoin, it's very easy to understand. You have a collective interest in the currency and supporting it. And in some cases, you're mining it, but you can run a node without mining as well. So that's a public chain because enough people have to get together in a decentralized way and there's no barrier to entry. Ethereum is much the same way, only there's smart contracts on it and there's NEO and many other public chains. 
And all of them function in a way where even if there is a little bit of centralized authority, such as there is in Neo, it's still something that anyone can join. And the sole purpose of it, well, it depends on the chain. Ethereum is to be the world's next computer, like a decentralized computer. Bitcoin is be the world's next currency and all its analogs as well. Private chain usually is something where I focus on the consensus model because that's usually what is the barrier to entry. So if I wanted to join the blockchain that powers, say there's 12 banks in a consortium, this is a very real example in the US, and you're trying to get onto this, you have to pass a barrier. In fact, the most common private chain that everyone knows is Ripple. And that is something that you need to have permission to get on. And the reason you need to have permission to get on is because it's not controlled by any very fair consensus protocol. It's controlled by voting. So if I agree that in my party or group of this consortium agrees that you can come in and make a vote, well, there had to be some centralized trust for that. That's Ripple, as opposed to, say, Bitcoin, where, like I said, you can come in, you can do mining, and the mining itself supports, just like Ethereum as well, the mining supports the consensus protocol. That's a long answer, but hopefully everyone understands the basics of mining and consensus protocols enough to know right. the public. Right. And folks, if you if this is your first experience with blockchain, this is not a great episode for you. Um, there's some really great stuff out there on YouTube. Very simple, easy to understand and great articles out there. So I, if this is your first rub with uh, the concept or cryptocurrency, I suggest you hit the pause button. Uh, do Spend some time on Google, your search engine of choice and then uh, come on back and this will be a lot more informative to you. Something you said there, I uh, wasn't really planning to discuss it, but I'm super interested in going back to you talking about participating in Bitcoin and their blockchain and creating a node on a public chain, but not mining, not participating in mining of currency. If it's not going to take us too far, why would one ever want to do that? That's a really good question. And, you know, it's, it's sort of at the heart of uh, why this makes it a huge decentralized public network, like why Bitcoin is the way it is and why it's so reliable. There's really a few things that you want to do to create your own node for it. Say you're running Bitcoin. It's a little easier, more apt to explain it with Ethereum, but either one works. In a nutshell, just to be clear, not to go into details of the what is Bitcoin, but a node on its own without any kind of mining is really just literally like any peer-to-peer application. It is a daemon that runs and it stores some information and that information is the chain itself. And its job is to talk to other nodes as quickly as possible and collect transactions and then put them into blocks. And then when everyone agrees what the next block is, it mints it as a block and it serves up sort of as a read-only capacity for the chain itself and the history. It's called a full node. And you run it because you're altruistic and you want to keep you know, the number of nodes high and keep the transaction rate fairly high. Or you run it because you're doing development and you need a reference node so that you can constantly refer to it and query from it. You know, or you have a reason to query from the blockchain to do analysis, or you're going to do mining, in which case you must have a full node in order to actually do the long chain validation and do the math required to actually do the, the hash guessing work that is actually mining. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so who is, you mentioned an example of a consortium of potentially US-based banks, but who else is implementing private chains right now? A lot. I would generally categorize it, and I'm probably missing some really interesting use cases by doing this, but the most interesting ones that pop up in the news all the time are banks, obviously, and other financial institutions that are either international or even within a national setting in order to exchange anything from literally settlement of balances between each bank 
to loans and exchanging things like loan ratings for individual applicants, an attestation of that particular applicant. So if we have a credit rating of a certain amount, there's lots of work being done right now to share that with another bank securely so that I don't have to calculate that every single time. And then in turn, get some kind of credit, if you will, on the network for it. That's a slightly more complicated example, but it also sets the tone for there's many other use cases in IoT. That's really speaking generally, but I would say supply chain dynamics. IBM is excellent right now at pushing forward Hyperledger, which is a type of blockchain technology I hadn't mentioned earlier, as a toolkit to build private chains. Many people are doing it. IBM has some big names like some power grids in the US some other work that's in Europe along supply chain and logistics. So supply chain logistics, banking, and then I think the third one is, I think healthcare is, you'll hear less about it as a production because it takes forever to bring a good healthcare product for great reasons to production, especially if you're dealing with customer data. But certainly a lot of work is being done and invested in right now in, in healthcare. And specifically use cases around that would be things like sharing blood work or um, sharing medical records in general. As you can imagine, anything around healthcare is extremely expensive. So anything that decentralizes and makes it more secure is worth the time and effort. Probably half a dozen other use cases and areas. But the nice thing about private change is you don't have to tell anybody about them. Right, right. So if um, now certainly the option because and again, the assumption is everyone understands at least at a basic level how blockchain works. Uh, certainly you know, you have the option of leveraging an existing public chain like Ethereum, depending on your specific use case. So there must be some sort of decision-making process or criteria to one undergoes to decide, okay, am I going to build my own private chain or maybe opt into someone else's private chain who I like or participate in the current uh, public chain? Walk us through the decision-making process of public versus private. Sure. And I'll go to a specific example because we recently at Pythian had to make this choice and we'll probably have to make it again and again for many of the other use cases that are coming up. That choice was around, we have an asset management chain. Specifically, it's a private chain now, but we had to go through the exercise of making sure that the private chain was right for this particular decision. And starting out, the first question is very little to do with the technology and more to do with the participants in, in the chain. So the participants in this particular chain, this is asset management specifically for software asset management, as well as a few physical asset managements as it pertains to employees in, in a typical workspace. That could be anything from your office equipment straight up to the software licenses and the laptops that you have. So the assets in this case, there's one common owner. And we had to also answer the question of if you're at a private chain, the first question that usually comes up is why wouldn't you just use a database in the first place? Right. And that is a very valid question. So maybe before you even say public versus private, you're also thinking like, why should I use the blockchain? And so it goes back to the fundamental question of who is going to interact in that blockchain. So the asset management in this case has owners as well as sort of an operator or a licensor. And that is especially easy to understand in software licenses. You have, you know, a Microsoft and you have a purchaser of that license or a user of that license. And then you have, in some cases, assets where like a coffee machine is being licensed and there's a user of it, but there will one day be another user of it because maybe that company no longer needs the coffee machine and it goes over there. There are all sorts of assets that we could share, including a fleet of cars if we really wanted to as well. So if we think about it like that, the people involved, or rather the organizations involved, as well as the individuals involved, really dictate the use and the choice of the blockchain. If this was public, in other words, that we used a public chain to track all of this, 
The benefit would be that it's totally decentralized. There doesn't need to actually be an authority to manage this. All we'd really need to do is write the software around it that actually connects to that chain. And if we just assume that, you know, the asset management for a sec is magic and that we wrote it properly, changes to that would be publicly known and that would be great. So let's go with that example just for a sec. Say I use public chain in a digital asset management or physical asset management company. Now, in a company that has physical assets and software assets, if I start removing chairs or removing software licenses or changing what I have, there is a frequent problem that comes up. It's, it's known as alpha, where people will, just like going through your trash in, in Wall Street, try to find out what your company's doing and how well it's doing. And that's pretty easy when you put your entire purchase history for something on a chain. So there may be unforeseen stock influences by doing things like this. So that's one example. There's many reasons why you want to keep your purchasing private. So there's ways to do this on the public chain, technology-wise. And you know, I, I won't go too far on the aside, but there is a way to have a transaction and have it private. Monero does this instinctively. Zcash does it already as well. But in Ethereum, it, it's something called the zero-knowledge proof. And that is a great thing to look up, but I won't mention it anymore. The point being, though, is that at some point, pseudo-anonymity, which is when you have an address, but if someone finds out what the address is and links it back to you, there's no going back. It's forever on the chain. You can't hide that again. That's pseudo-anonymity. So that's exactly what you get on, an, on a public chain. So even if somebody, nobody knows who you are, if you make a purchase of like, you know, 10 million widgets or something, and you're the only company on that chain that can afford it, then everyone knows what you bought. Right. So in a nutshell, that's why we decided to make a private chain. Right. And it's just more comfortable and appealing for everyone else. There's a few other items on that list. And the other one is uh, transaction cost. Now, I don't know if anyone, here's another aside that if anyone wants to go through and look up CryptoKitties, by all means, look at it. It's a tremendously fun little Tamagotchi kind of game on Ethereum, but it also impeded the use of real transactions and the processing real transactions because it got so popular. And frankly, Ethereum is still early on and needs a little bit more in terms of scalable architecture. In other words, there's a cost associated with having a busy chain. So we didn't want to pay that cost either because there wasn't enough benefit to do that. So here we are, we're on a private chain and all our participants agreed to be on that private chain. And because I don't have to worry about miners and because I don't have to worry about a lot of nodes, I just need a minimum number of nodes, I can now implement something that is called consortium consensus. And that's what I mentioned earlier, which is voting. So I have a party of voters, I have a group of people on there, and I can vote. Okay. So that's a really long answer to, to how we actually chose private. There's even more involved, but I'm going to pause there. Right, right. Okay, so just uh, coming up with another example then with the decision tree of public versus private uh, companies are always, you know, to, to figure out the next uh, great Apple, you know, prototype device thing that, they, you know, what it, what it's going to look like. Companies are always, uh, or companies, people are always trying to figure out, you know, what types of screens Apple is ordering on mass or what types of processors or that sort of thing. So if they were using uh, even a public blockchain, even for their supply chain management, and they noticed that uh, a certain type of processor, there were massive orders by Apple, then, you know, they would very much much to have a clue about the next device. Do I have that right? Absolutely. And I think one of the ones that wasn't a big decision maker for the example I used because the number of transactions for ownership transfers aren't very high. If you think of things like, let's just say there's a messaging engine because there's a specific example of a company doing this. They're called Spider Oak. And they basically sell you a chain, which is a private chain, and the clients go with it. 
and they set this up and you have nice intercompany messaging, which is tremendous. It's called Semaphore, actually. And they even have distributed backups. All of these are really clever ideas, but it's too costly and not private enough to put on the chain. There's another aspect that's critical to the messaging, which is the number of transactions or the number of messages that anyone of, any one of us would use on Slack is quite high. I'd ignore purchases for a sec. The amount of messages in a given organization at any medium to large size is so big that it would actually overwhelm the Ethereum public network or even the Neo net. Well, you know, we could debate, but probably it would. And it would certainly um, overwhelm Bitcoin, believe it or not. The transaction rates in these networks are not that high. It's something like eight transactions per second right now. And, you know, Visa's at like 700,000 transactions per second, depending on how you count them. So Right. As you talk about the, the network, and something that comes to mind is the effect of the recent changes to net neutrality in the United States. It just keeping it at the layman level for me, if anything, is there a concern or anything we should worry about with the changes in regards to blockchains? Oh, no, this blockchains are a solution, not a full solution. I think that there still needs to be a whole lot of legislation, which, you know, not worth getting into, but from a technology standpoint, it's actually amazing that, you know, we haven't seen more cries of help from, you know, DNS and, and other like countries, especially that like China that are stuck behind a firewall that where they can't actually access things, mostly because of DNS. And I'm not going to describe how the internet works, but the name service itself, if it's blocked, you can't actually go to like www.google.com. Well, there's a huge working proposal to change the name services for the internet. In other words, everything's the same. We have the same protocols, but to find the website and link it up, or even have it stored in some cases, but even just to find it, putting DNS on blockchain. It's totally decentralized. DNS should be decentralized. In fact, this is the answer to a lot of problems. So wait, net neutrality doesn't impact us other than it's certainly inspiring a lot of very good ideas that makes it feel like this is the grand old days of the internet when we thought that everything was going to be equal because of it. Right. Well, very cool. Something we'll have to get into maybe in a, a future blog post or, or even episode. And so something you, something else that really stuck out to me that you mentioned, albeit briefly, was about a different consensus model for public versus private. Whenever I'm reading about blockchain, it's almost always about crypto, to be honest. And, the, you know, there's mining and all of the talk. I mean, heck, try to order a new video card right now. That aside, yeah. why don't you go a little bit deeper into the how the consensus model is different in a private chain? For sure. So I've alluded to it a few times, but it's probably easier to understand if I just contrast all of the options together. If we're just strictly talking about blockchain and not like hash chains or some other related but interesting technologies, and we just keep it to something like a Bitcoin and Ethereum example, there's something that we all know and love, which is mining. And mining in a nutshell is using those really expensive video cards that we all like to game on, the GPUs to actually do guesses, hash guesses on a particular part of the chain. So we're trying to add more transactions to the end of a chain and keep it long and mutable and perfect. And so there's a math proof that goes along with that. And you can look it up, but that's what mining is essentially. And the, the reason that's important is that it's sort of a lottery as to who's going to win that game of getting the right answer in that mining. And it's super interesting on its own. But the most important aspect about it is that it guarantees that our network in Bitcoin is a consistently decentralized network. So anyone can guess that answer. Anyone can participate in that game. And unless more than one person has more than 51% of the miners, you're generally assumed to have a nice, large Byzantine group of miners that are 
trying equally to get that prize. Now, what does that have to do with consensus and how does this compare and contrast? You only have consensus because someone gets that chain right after a successful mining attempt. And because you have a bunch of people interested in spending money to get that answer right, you have people that value the currency. So it centralized, it, it creates a consensus by ensuring that anyone who spent the time and effort to do the mining is also going to want all those answers, all that tra- those transactions to be right, because otherwise the currency is no good if you can double spend or you can go and take it in, into a different direction, split the, the chain. So everyone's interested in a cohesive network and everyone's willing to spend the money and time. And if you're a miner, you're going to get rewarded. But this is a desire and decentralized desire for it. And creating that scarcity is one of the brilliant aspects of blockchain. But that's not where everyone's going with blockchain. So that's the mining. That's a gold standard for decentralized public blockchain. Another one that we're moving to with Ethereum is called, that's proof of work, by the way, the mining. Proof of stake and proof of work, you'll hear debates about it all the time. Proof of stake, without going into the complexity of it, depends on what implementation you're looking for. I would, as a side, if you want to know more and you're technical, look up Casper and look up Ethereum proof of stake. But in a nutshell, it matters how much you own plus a degree of randomization to make sure it's fair. So if you own a lot of currency, the value of the currency and the economics of it is such that you don't want that currency to be devalued by having a split chain. So that's proof of stake in a nutshell. And then finally, you have, I mentioned consortium. In English, this just means fair votes. So we can mess with that model any way we want. But the minute you leap from proof of stake and proof of work, you're away from the public where anyone can join and participate in this to a private where I say, look, I'm not going to let you on unless you have this particular like encrypted key and you only get this voting right because in my consortium, I am the tyrant and I have 51% and the rest of you have an equal share. The reality is that most banks will have balanced voting systems. In fact, most of the the implementations that exist of this particular method, because you can download one right now, JP Morgan Quorum, it's it's just Ethereum with this consensus model bundled in. So that and variations on the consortium method is the beginning of what private chains can do. They can get really complicated. They can get as complicated as a bunch of lawyers in a room creating the most interesting board of directors decision, and that can be coded into it. But it's generally pretty simple with voting. So those three models are the most dominant ones, the two being public and the the consortium being the, the most common private. Okay. So in terms of, let's say that I've I've decided to create a private chain for the reasons that we've covered. How do I get people to agree to join in and utilize my private chain? Is like, is it a technology thing? Is it a more come get my product or what? It's, it's a really good question because it get, brings us back out of this like weird, obscure technology back into the realm of reality, which is who's going to use your chain? And it's a super good question of like, why does everyone like Bitcoin even prior to a lot of speculation buying? Because of the weight of the technology and the utility that it brings. But usually in a private chain, I describe the situation that we were running into with software asset management and physical asset management. The interest is on the licensor or the owner of the asset who's renting it to have proper control. And then the interest is on the the licensee and the actual user of the asset to know that they're getting a fair deal and be fair with their actual licensor and that all charges that are associated with that are actually fair as well. And if there's any swapping, if you're going to allow swapping, we want this to be fair. So what I've described is a section of interests that are coinciding. And then there's a general agreement that we want to be fair with each other 
but we also don't want to have to sit there and audit each other constantly. We want it just to be overtly fair. So the reason I describe that use case is that's usually your, your selling point for just about every private chain that comes up. Do I have a group of people that need to be absolutely sure about something and need to automatically agree to it? And in some cases, it's a group of machines and people or just a group of machines. Hence, a lot of IoT cases like a robot is moving a shipping container from one place to another or at least components of a shipping container. They want to be able to track that and no one wants to disagree with it. So it goes in the chain along with everything else. Okay. How big is So I, I have no, I'm sure someone can look this up, but, um, uh, and I'm sure that the number of nodes for Bitcoin are significant and significantly changing all the time. But in a private chain situation, like how many nodes do I need? Like five, 5,000, 5 million? Three. <laughs> you need three. It's good to have multiple parties agree to, you know, have a lot of nodes because what you really want is the more nodes you have, the more reliable your network is. Like, let's ignore the fact that it's blockchain for a sec mm-hmm. and just think about good old fashioned Tor networks or peer-to-peer networks that we may have used and may have legally shared files on at some point in the future. The more nodes you have, the more connections you have. And if there's a death, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. The number of public nodes, obviously, there's a, there's a desperate need to have a high number of public nodes. That's never been a problem. The nice part about the public nodes in like Ethereum and Bitcoin is you have mining going on and, and rewards. So even with the nodes that belong to the miners themselves, there's enough nodes. So that's great. It's a problem that solves itself. But for a private chain, you have to literally start and go, well, okay, if we're going to be part of this chain then I have to agree to have these private nodes. They have to be in the right region where we can talk to each other. And you want to have three to ideally, practically speaking, in a quorum node set. If I have three organizations, I probably want to have at least 30 nodes. And that's a healthy number. Okay. Is there a maximum number? There is actually. I don't know what it is exactly because it's probably theoretical. But practically speaking, it's interesting because Neo is another chain that doesn't just do this perfect equality across all nodes. There actually are, there's an election process for sort of these master nodes that do a lot of the decision-making. And this makes it faster from a consensus model without getting too far into that. They have like about 10 grand. I may be misquoting the number, but there's a fixed number of master nodes, like 10,000 or something. In fact, I think it's even less, but there's an upper limit and it's more to do with the reality of like the speed of light and transfer of communications between all the nodes in Ethereum. So your private chain is never going to have that problem, but the public chain will have a problem. There's ways of handling that. The peer-to-peer network, just like there is in normal peer-to-peer networks, if, if it's too slow and you have this wonderful full node that you're running on your laptop at home and your terrible internet connection, you might not actually get hit for queries all that often. And functionally, as long as you keep up with the network, you're fine. But practically speaking, the nodes that are in the most, in the fastest section have that consistent, not perfectly in the software elevated, but it is practically elevated. And for private nodes, you you would run out of money before you <laughs> you'd have a maximum limit. Right. Okay. So we covered maximum. So let's say we went with the smallest number we could. We're creating a brand new private chain. So we went with three, but number three dies. I, presumably now we don't have enough nodes because and we and we have an even number, which is probably another problem in any voting situation. What then? What happened? If you had a consortium rule that said, two, like, say that our rule was two thirds of the population has to vote. You know, more than more than a 50% majority, two thirds. If we have two nodes out of three, actually, it would keep running. The problem would be that that third node probably belongs to a company and they would have to come back online and bring their nodes in. So frequently what happens in a practical situation, like in a, in a set of three companies 
that just like anyone else running a database in the back end, they want to have some degree of high availability. Because the nature of, of the blockchain is such that it just it's sort of like high availability is built in, you can just run this in multiple regions in AWS, or if you're very paranoid, like me, you run it in AWS, Google, and Microsoft Azure, and now you have full redundancy, and you can run them in different regions if you want even more. Okay. And you can be readily sure that if you do that, like unless the entire backbone of the internet goes down, you're in a good set situation. Okay. Okay, makes sense. And then what about Ether and tokens in, in the private chain? So Ether is a currency that's valued only because it's on the public network, and so is Bitcoin, right? But what's interesting is that if you create a public network, all you're really doing is taking a state, like we can create a public network in about five minutes by downloading Ethereum and then creating our own private chain. You're using all the code and all of the components of Ethereum at that point, but it's not Ether anymore because no one values your tiny little chain. There's no investment in it. Nobody's spending money to mine on it. it even if we started it tomorrow, I don't think that Atom Chain would get very far unless I had some compelling reason to do something different from Ethereum. So most altcoins are modifications of off the code base, off Bitcoin or off Ethereum. They build on top of it. And their value is based on whether or not they want to offer miners rewards and whatnot. That's what gives value. But now we have this Ethereum code sitting inside a private network. Do we even use it? It depends on your use case. In an asset management chain, actually, we do. We use it to as sort of a bookkeeping device since it's there to exchange value between multiple assets. So if I borrowed your coffee machine or your car and I created my own little mini rideshare program inside the asset management network, well, I need a currency to at least denote some kind of value. And that's what we use. And tokens, just for the record, are just smart contracts that sit on top of and are valued by in a public network. If you put a token on top of Ethereum, your token is sort of attached to Ether's value because the, the value is in the network. And the value is also in whatever tokens you use for. So that those two components, including supply and demand, make up what your, your total value of your token is. Well, that doesn't exist in, in a private chain because, again, it goes back to the same equation. Nobody wants your token. So a right. token is just a piece of software. Yeah, nobody's buying Chris currency, just uh, FYI. So it's, yeah. uh, it's uh, valueless only to me. Okay, so I think you've covered kind of how I can create and establish value within my private chain among companies and whatnot. But what about transferring value into the private chain? Maybe there was a competing private chain, another consortium of companies were doing things, and now they're going to join mine because I like their vending machines or whatnot, and they're going to get in on this. How do they bring with them their value? Yeah, that's it's going to be a big problem in the future because there's so many private chains. We don't even know how many. But I promise you I'm not the only one who made an asset management chain or an identity chain, which is even easier to understand why that can become a problem. So if our identities are federated across all of these chains, how do we actually federate them? In other words, they're virtually federated by the fact I'm in one person, but how does Adam use on chain in Uport and Consensus Uport match Adam's chain on the government website, which may exist one day? Sorry, on the government website. On the government chain, um, like say the Canadian government decides to create an identity chain for its services, for social assistance, for, for healthcare, that kind of thing. So, which would be amazing, by the way. So how do I link that, that identity or maybe my global traveler identity to this? It's a chain talking to a chain problem. And whether these are chains are public or private actually ceases to matter immensely on whether or not they're public or private because there's value in each chain. So now there may be a really big chain that was an asset management chain, saying our chain eventually had like 
30 companies and it was I could even start selling a token on it because it might be actually worth something. But in reality, what's valuable about that chain is the people on it or the, the assets on it. So we want to be able to communicate those assets reliably to another chain. There is a set of technologies that link chains together from disparate technologies, sometimes from the same, sometimes from disparate technologies by anchoring them with certain values. And that value tends to be if you have two Ethereum chains linked together, they're usually based on Ether. Now, we already said that I don't have any value in my chain, which is why it was good to sort of go through that first. If my private chain doesn't have any like currency that's of value to anyone else in the world, the only thing it has value is those, are those assets. Well, those assets, in other words, the coffee machine and whatnot, they may be valuable to someone else in the other chain. So now we're, we have this notion of exchange of value, but we don't have the mechanism to put them together. That's where technologies like that are just being invented are coming out. Then it's often called sidechain, but chain of chains, you'll hear that. If you want to look this up, Cosmos, another Toronto company, just throwing it out there. Tendermint is a protocol that does this chain of chains. And what we see in the future is whatever the technology ends up being, you'll have exchanges by anchoring a currency. So if I'm linking this to Ethereum, I'll hold one Ethereum for whatever number of assets or partial assets I have in the other chain, and we link them together. It's a little hard to get our heads around it right now until you've sort of gone through the technology, but it's sort of like an escrow in one chain for assets in another, and then we start exchanging it. Multiple chains and large chains are going to become a problem. So in the future, you probably are going to see a lot more people go away from private chains and start thinking about larger, more important public chains, either ones that exist already or having a little bit more weight around creating or a little more restriction and barrier to entry around creating a large chain. Because what people will want is if our assets are on these chains in assets in whatever form, virtual or otherwise, we'll want them to matter more and be exchangeable for currency and matter more in the sense that everyone cares that the chain is accurate. And that is chain of chains and the utopia of blockchain eventually. Right. Okay. So if we're looking at building that our private chain, you've mentioned Ethereum more often than any other technology. Is that my best choice in the private chain space? If you want to get started right now, tomorrow, my recommendation is, yeah, you go, you learn Ethereum. There's plenty of documentation on it. And then from an implementation perspective, ironically, despite what their CEO says in the news all the time, JP Morgan, which is part of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, has actually come up with an excellent distro of distribution of Ethereum that contains that consortium blockchain method. In fact, it's so simple now, you can go onto like onto Azure and get this whole, that exact technology up and running in a VM in like about, I think the last time I did it, it was 15 minutes. And you'd have your own private chain with a consortium. And hey, guess what? That's what we use. And it's got all the functionality of the existing Ethereum just as a private chain. And so that you can get done in no time. You can learn how to program in Solidity. So it becomes the best choice right now. And that's what we use right now. But with things like NEO coming out, NEO is sort of like a half decentralized chain that makes, it does a lot of really good work to create distributed organizations with an understanding that some aspects of those organizations will need to be centralized by either regulators like the country that it's working in or by the organizations themselves. It's a good lookup. We don't have time to go into it right now, but it would be one of the other ones that people are looking at for doing private chains with. Okay. And are the tools, if I'm developing for one or the other, are the tools the same or different? They are different. The languages are different. In fact, Neo has supports a bunch of languages, but right now, speaking of languages, there is a literal, not computer language, but English language barrier because it is 
predominantly Chinese, although there's still plenty of English documentation that's changing you know, daily. And there's plenty of English like speaking companies that are going to use it right now. But it's just not as prevalent as Ethereum and its public chain is not even remotely as valuable as Ethereum. And I think that's going to dictate who knows what and what technology gets used. Okay. There are other, like without going into any detail, but there are other types of consensus models that will probably be faster for doing transactions. I mentioned scalability was a problem. So I don't expect this answer to be complete. I expect if you ask me in six months that I would be saying things like there are other alternatives for high-speed networks for messaging or for certain currency like a hash graph that is similar to blockchain, but slightly different. We're just getting started and start with Ethereum and go from there. Okay, that makes sense. And just thinking a little bit more about the death of net neutrality, at least in the United States, it would seem to me that your ISP may be able to slow down or deprioritize your mining traffic. Do I misunderstand that? And are you hearing anything about that sort of thing? No, I haven't heard anything specifically about anyone restricting Ethereum or Bitcoin specifically, because if they did, it would be a public, except for in China and a few other places. And when they do it, it's not because they're trying to shape traffic. They're literally trying to block that particular use case because they don't want cryptocurrency to exist. It's actually not like Netflix dwarfs anything that a mining node will ever do. Like the mining primary resource it consumes is you probably have heard people going to like rivers and creating their own little the solar networks to power their miners. That it's power and it's because it's CPU driven. It doesn't matter if 50% of our nodes are run offshore. They'll as long as we can connect to them, we're still fine. And there's only so much that the net neutrality laws can control. There's still going to be some degree of free access. Right. I'm not worried yet. Okay, just checking because you know I had just had this plot in my mind of paying, say, Comcast to uh, slow down all of the miners so that then I could join this other ISP and get more guesses maybe and therefore hopefully mine more coin. Yeah, and that would be a highly coordinated and because there's an element of chance, of large amounts of chance associated with it, I think that you would probably lose that game economically. Gotcha. You'd have to literally be AT&T. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> so I, I think we've done a really good job of, of covering the topic overall, but I always like to give my listeners a starting point where they can get, you know, dig in and, and, and self-serve to a lot of more information. And we've certainly done that all along, but let's like bring it all the back around. And I'm not, of course, folks, these will be in the show notes. Don't write anything down. Go to pythian.com, check out the blog. We put the show notes there all the time. But Adam, if there were a couple of really great resources that you would recommend, let's keep it. I know that you have many, but let's keep it to just one or two kind of thing. What would you recommend that people dig into? Okay, so if if we're talking about maybe developing a private chain, I would just say at least start with one technology like Ethereum, as mentioned before. And I think that, you know, from a business standpoint, if you're not even looking to develop, you should really be familiar with the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. And we'll put a link to that as well in the podcast. And basically that has webinars that are excellent. Uh, You can see what all sorts of companies, including Consensus, Microsoft, JP Morgan are doing with blockchain privately. And on top of that, it's a really good central point to jump off to all sorts of different technologies that where the enterprise is actually using Ethereum, both in a private and a public sense, it's an excellent resource. So that's one. And then the second one I'd say is for the developers out there that like want to get their hands dirty and want to go try out something like I mentioned Quorum, which is that Ethereum blockchain with the added consensus protocols for things like consortium um, amongst a few other items, you can always just learn Ethereum and instantly apply it to that particular technology. So 
I'll give you some links on good old Medium Hacker Noon has an excellent five-part Ethereum development walkthrough, which is, to, to my mind, the fastest way to get to a smart contract in production that I've seen so far. And the rest of it is keep in the Ethereum Reddit and the Ethereum Gitter channels if you ever want support and you just want to know what's going on. They're always really, really active. Great. Well, thank you, Adam. I'm, I'm sure the audience will, will really appreciate that. And folks, it makes a lot of sense uh, given not just the hype around cryptocurrencies, but the really interesting use cases that are coming down the pipe. Understanding a blockchain, following it is, I think, very important if you're in IT or even if you're just in business and you don't care about IT. I'm a, and now I am a believer uh, very much in the technology and very excited about it, uh, even for me personally as a consumer, as a person who holds assets sets and that sort of thing. So thank you once again, Adam, for coming to the show today. It's been fascinating. Awesome. And thank you for not asking me about uh, which cryptocurrency to buy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. That's all the time we had for today, folks. The biggest compliment that you can give us is helping a friend know where to find us or writing us a short, honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And as always, we love your feedback. Note the different email address here. If you have some feedback, you can email me directly at presley at pythian.com. That's all we had for today. Have a great day in the datascape. Navigating the datascape.